0: Hello, and welcome to the Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host, and I am very excited to be joined once again by my good friend and co-host, the Fulham Flyer, the Shiwangunk Express, the Serge Arbona to my Serge Ibaka, and that is a deep fucking cut, ladies and gentlemen. Phil Vondra, welcome back to the Pain Cave. How are you?
1: Wow, I love that intro. It's great to be back in the socially distanced Pain Cave. I miss uh, going through your uh, Harry Potter stuffy collection and your uh, Star Wars Lego sets, but uh, this is good. This
0: works. (laughs) This is going to be another fun uh, 20 questions episode. Uh, So we're very psyched for that with, uh, we're going to welcome in Bob Hearn in just a second to learn a little bit more about his career and how he has really grown into one of the top ultra runners in the country. But, you know, there is one bit of housekeeping we have to address before we uh, welcome Bob onto the call this past weekend was the opening weekend for the Premier League and was also the uh, the, the, oh, first a, a two, the first of two the first of two pain cave derbies this year. Uh, the final Fulham nil Arsenal three. How are you feeling yeah. about your return to the Premier League?
1: I'm feeling good that we're back in the Premier League and um, I'm happy for Arsenal to get their one win that they're probably going to get this season. <laughs> First game of the season and uh, bring on the uh, the rest of the season.
0: Hey, I am a, uh, I'm, I'm pragmatic, if nothing else, and top of the table, motherfuckers, top of the table.
1: Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's, that's nice, I guess, you know, it hasn't been that way for the last 10 years. No, so I guess, been, you know, it's been enjoy a bit of a struggle.
0: <laughs> it's been a, bit, a yeah. bit of a struggle. All right, Phil, let's, let's see if we can get Bob on the line and we'll get into 20 questions with Bob Hearn in just a second. Phil, it is time for us to talk about toothpaste. This episode of the Pain Cave Podcast is sponsored by Himalaya Botanique Toothpaste. Phil, have you ever had an experience with natural toothpaste where you just feel like your teeth aren't getting clean? Well,
1: yes, I certainly have. I'm English. I'm very aware of that feeling.
0: (laughs) I guess for you that that feeling comes with any kind of toothpaste.
1: Yeah, it's certainly <laughs> certainly something we have a rich heritage of. <laughs>
0: uh, I've definitely had the experience with, you know, trying a natural toothpaste where it just it's like brushing with chalk, where it just feels really, like, dusty and, and, I don't know, my teeth feel just as dirty after I use it than uh, they did beforehand. But not with uh, Himalaya botanique toothpaste, which uh, we were lucky enough to get to try a few samples of. It has the same texture and feel and flavor of a regular toothpaste, but without all the nasty other additives that we try to avoid.
1: Yep, I scrubbed up my pearly whites with it yesterday evening and this morning, and they felt rather rather nice, actually, I have to say.
0: I can't wait to go for a run with you later today and see how sparkling white your teeth are.
1: Yep, I'll show you from the six-foot distance, but you'll certainly be careful not to catch the sun, sun rays bouncing off them.
0: I'll, I'll wear my sunglasses so I don't get blinded by the reflection.
1: Sounds like a very good idea. I like the way that you are on the side of caution.
0: Himalaya Botanique is our sponsor for today's episode. This is a toothpaste that is free from fluoride, SLS, and artificial colors and flavors, but unlike other similar toothpaste, it does not compromise on flavor or performance. Himalaya toothpaste is always bursting with foam and flavor. I would agree with all those statements. How about you? I
1: certainly would, yeah. It was very good. <laughs>
0: uh, if you're interested in trying it for yourself, you can now get 20% off Himalaya Botanique toothpaste on Amazon with the discount code PAINCAVE20. Check out the show notes for more details on this episode's sponsorship with Himalaya Botanique. And thank you so much for your support. All right, we are very excited to welcome into the Pain Cave our guest for tonight's episode. We have on the line Bob Hearn. Bob has been running ultras for the better part of 12 to 15 years, as far as I can tell. But it's really in the last three to five years that he's become, or I should say, he's, he's kind of gone from being a, a strong kind of local regional runner to one of the top runners in the US at the 100 mile distance, the 24 hour, and the multi-days. Bob Hearn, welcome to the Pain Cave.
2: Thank you so much, Jason.
0: It's really great to have you on. Just to give uh, the listeners a little bit more of your resume. Um, You know, Bob has been, like I said, uh, competing for quite some time and and, uh, has multiple 150 plus mile efforts at 24 hours, which uh, if you're not familiar with the 24 hour distance, that is a shit ton away. Uh, He is a uh, member of the U.S. 24 hour national team in 2017, earned a bronze medal for the team at the world championships there. Just missed the, well, I think was the last person bumped off the team. By uh, Rich Ryapel last year for the 2019 team, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, most recently was a uh, record-setting second place at the Vol State 500K, which we've now had the uh, this this makes the top three uh, of the most recent Vol State finishers on our on our podcast. You're yeah. you're finishing out the podium, so
2: welcome. Yeah. Um, Thanks. I do have one one correction. I was uh, I did run at the 24 hour World Championships in Belfast, but I was the first alternate. Oh, um, I okay. I missed making the team by, by 300 feet. Oh God. And then for 2019, I missed. Yeah, I was bumped on the last day again. So that's that's my my fate. But so be it.
0: Oh man. Uh, all right. Well, we'll get into that before we get into our 20 questions, Bob. Uh, just want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're originally from Oklahoma. You're now in the Bay area. Tell us just real briefly, how'd you get into ultra running? What do you do? And, uh, some, just a little bit of background like that.
2: I, uh, how did I get into ultra running? Well, I got really into running when I was doing my PhD kind of as an escape, I think from doing research and, uh, got hooked up with marathon maniacs. So I was doing tons and tons of marathons. Mm -hmm. And eventually a friend told me, oh, you can do two marathons in one weekend and you can do a 50-miler. Come do this 50-miler with me. And I gradually realized that, um, you know, I'm never going to be a world-class marathoner. And the the longer the race, the better I do. And the ultra scene is just a lot more fun than the marathon scene. And um, gradually shifted to ultras. It wasn't until about five years ago that, um, I guess, six years ago, I went keto. And then I started doing these really long. Flat races, 24 hours, and long road races, and realized that that's that's my real strength. I'm not a, I'm not an awesome trail runner, but the long road stuff um, that's that's where I live. Yeah,
0: and you've had a lot of success at Spartathlon, among other long races as well. But what's your PhD in? What do you do for a living?
2: <laughs> my PhD is in uh, computer science uh, from MIT, and I'm a bum. For, I'm a running bum for a living right now. <laughs> I was I've you know done some startups both before and after grad school. And, um, you know, I do some consulting, but right now, mostly I just run and have fun.
0: Uh, Phil, a Ph.D. in computer science from MIT might qualify him as the smartest official guest on the podcast at this point.
1: I think it could. Yeah. You being second and me probably being the third.
0: (laughs) Well, I was (laughs) very impressed
1: impressed with
2: Francesca. Yeah, yeah, seriously, she's up there. Yeah, she's yeah. she's very smart. Yeah, yeah, especially her book recommendation at the end—that was incredible. Phil, tell yeah. your
0: story about that one.
2: Okay. Well, you're gonna laugh, Bob. I actually bought that book because, <laughs> oh. like, it sounds so interesting.
1: I'm yeah. gonna buy it. So obviously, I had to buy an English translation of it, and yes. uh, it landed. It was a very heavy package. It's <laughs> um, 2,500 pages long. So I, I, I gathered that. Yeah. I will <laughs> try I, and read ten pages a day for the <laughs> next I've 20 old, years I've had it for two weeks and i've read 10 <laughs> pages so i'm not yeah. doing really that well but
2: well, I've, I've looked i examined it on amazon i haven't yet clicked by but i i, uh, I,
1: I did click good. by yeah and um you can see it <clears throat> right here oh, <laughs> it, it, does nice.
2: it, it. it does sound yeah. amazing
0: it does sound amazing
1: yeah that wow. be, i can could, I could actually do arm curls with it
0: yes <laughs> All right, Bob, we're about to put you on the hot seat for 20 rapid fire questions or somewhat rapid okay. fire questions. But uh, before we get started, Phil, what are we drinking tonight?
1: Tonight, I am drinking a Treehouse Brewing Green um, IPA. Yeah, I was just in uh, Maine on the way home. I went stopped in uh, to Massachusetts and stopped into Treehouse Brewing.
0: Very nice. I am going to break open a half acre Navajo, a double IPA. So I'll be asleep pretty soon. Whoa. So we will uh, we'll need to get this thing over quickly. Bob, what do you very
2: got? Nice. I am uh, more of a wine guy than a beer guy. I'm drinking uh, Barolo made with uh, Nebbiolo, nice northern Italian grape.
0: You swirl, you swirl that like a pro. That's very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> All right.
2: Sounds. So ultra-running wine expert is in your future, I think. Uh, not much of an expert, but, uh, but I enjoy good Barolo. Oh,
0: gosh. Okay. Sorry. Oh, I love Barolo. That was a big swig. All right. I'm good. I'm good. All right. Bob, you know what we're doing here? We're doing 20 questions. I guess you heard our last episode with Ellie, so you kind of get the gist. We can go as as Mm -hmm. short or as long as you like. Feel free to expound uh, or just keep them quick, whatever you want to do. Uh, We're going to go alternating. Phil, you want to take the first one? What do you got for Bob?
1: All right. I'm going to go straight in there and ask you, what's your favorite
2: race, Bob? Oh, Spartathlon, hands down. Yeah.
0: How many times have you run Spartathlon? Like
2: at least three or four, right? Uh, three times. Yeah. I, first time in 2015. And I sort of immediately knew I was going to have to do it every year. But um, this year's canceled. Yeah. Uh, last year, I was two beat up from a six day and I missed one other year with torn tendon. So it's frustrating. But um, what, what is it about
0: that race? Because when I hear about, it, I mean, it sounds fascinating, obviously, just from the historical aspect. But everything I yeah. hear about it is just the traffic and the pollution and the heat. It, just, it sounds terrible.
2: No, 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 no. There's um, certainly there's heat and humidity, but that that's sort of pr- appropriate. I mean, you're, I mean, the whole thing about it is you're recreating this super important journey of Pheidippides, you know, I mean, the, right. you know, the popular story, of the marathon, right, is that, you know, the Greeks defeated the Persians at the battle of marathon, and then Philippides ran back from marathon to Athens and said, we won, and then he died, right. which is like 24 miles. Um, but that there's no evidence that actually happened. The history is very clear, though, that before the Battle of Marathon, Philippides ran from Athens to Sparta, which is 153 miles, to try to recruit the Spartans to help defend Greece. And you know, the Battle of Marathon was uh, a, a turning point in the history of democracy. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here today if if uh, classical Greece hadn't survived and democracy flourished. So. Um, when you're running Spartathlon, you know, you're running in the steps of Pheidippides, literally, from from you start at the, at the Parthenon, and you run to the statue of Leon, King Leonidas in Sparta, and you can't help, or at least I can't help, but feel just intimately connected to that history. It's not an arbitrary route. It's not an arbitrary distance. It's something that was vital that happened two and a half thousand years ago that it's just an incredible honor to be able to participate in and and recreate but you know that that's just sort of the context but the organization itself is is top-notch um there's just this ton of international camaraderie i made the best friends in the world there that um, i I really look forward to going and and seeing again and you know the structure of the race it's 153 miles but there's a 36-hour cutoff Right. And that's because history books say that Pheidippides left Athens one morning and arrived in Sparta the very next day. So you might think, you know, leave in the morning, arrive the next evening. That's what the race does. And a 36-hour cutoff for a 153-mile race is is a pretty serious thing, especially when there's a big yeah. mountain in the middle. Right. And so it has pretty low finish rate. And, you know, there's pretty stringent qualifications even to get in in the first place. So... It's uh, it's a really um, solid test. No matter who you are, you know some of the best ultra runners in the world have gone there and, and DNF'd. Right. Uh, so it's an honor and a challenge every time, just just to be there.
0: Okay. Okay. That sounds.
2: Awesome. That really sounds good.
0: Is it uh, just not to belabor Spartathlon too much, and I realize this is just our first question, but, you know, we, we hear when we talk to some other runners uh, about some of their racing experience internationally, you talk to people who have done, uh, you know, UTMB or some of the, the races uh, in Chamonix around that festival or, or um, some of the big races in, in Africa or elsewhere in Europe where the, the event is uh, kind of a huge deal among the general public, even among like the non-running uh, yeah. participants where you know everyone is kind of it kind of like the Boston Marathon here where the whole town yeah. is kind of yeah. aware does it have that feel is is the is the general public aware of what's going on or, and it, and it
2: does it's not on the scale of the Boston Marathon but um all the little villages you run through you know they let the kids out of school and the kids come and stand by the course and and get high fives and ask for autographs that's awesome um, yeah i mean the, the local population awesome. along the route um they're very aware of what's going on and very appreciative that we've all come to respect the history. Uh, so that's a very, very strong sense there.
0: Okay. Very cool. Very cool. All right. I'm going to piggyback off that with question number two. What's the toughest race you've ever run? (laughs)
2: That's an interesting question. You know, Badwater calls itself, um, the world's toughest. And I've, I've always kind of laughed at that because, um, like, compare it to Spartathlon, for instance. Badwater is 135 miles. Spartathlon's 153. Badwater has a 48-hour cutoff instead of 36. Um, of course, it's a lot hotter. Um, you know, I, I, to be honest, I didn't really have a lot of interest in Badwater for years. It just seemed like heat and torture for the sake of heat and torture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what's the point? But then when I went to Spartathlon, all, it's like all the other people on the U.S. Spartathlon team had run Badwater. And I gradually began to realize, well, wait a minute, all these people who run Badwater and Spartathlon, they tend to do better at Spartathlon, and I do better than they do at Spartathlon. So maybe I should, no, sorry, they tend to do better at Badwater than Spartathlon. Mm. And so maybe I should try Badwater because, you know, if if that logic holds up, I should easily be top 10 at Badwater. And so I ran Badwater a couple of years ago, targeting Originally 27, and then because it was the hottest day, hottest year ever, I said I changed. Okay, I'm going to pace for 28 hours, and I ran 36, and so it it kind of broke me. Yeah. Um, wow. And it uh, in that sense it, it was a, it was a tough race for me, mostly because the nighttime start. Honestly, I had a, I have a real problem running through the second night. Um, if it had been a morning start, I think I would have handled it better. Um, Vol State was certainly incredibly tough my first boston was really tough because it was only my second marathon and uh i wasn't prepared for the heat i was just totally inexperienced and i started cramping up about 20 miles in and just limped it in yeah um god you know spartathlon for most people who run it is going to be the toughest race they ever do um i I, you know toughest you can make any race as tough as you want so it's i don't think there's really an objective answer Right. I haven't run Barkley or probably that would be the answer hands down, but I right. haven't done it. So. No interest. Go ahead, Phil. Question three. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, do you have a coach? I do not have a coach. I think probably I'm uncoachable because I'm too <laughs> uh, opinionated. And a lot, a lot of the, f- the fun that I have in running is in trying to, um, you know, my blog is called The Puzzle of Running. Right, it's all about working out the puzzles myself and trying to figure out what happens if I do this in training instead of that or this in pacing. If somebody told me just do this and you'll have a good race, I wouldn't see the point, really.
0: Yeah, I think people who follow the sport closely know you're a very kind of data-oriented guy, and and like you said, you're uh, yeah. you like to experiment and try different things, and and you really approach it, I think, with a scientific mind, right? You have a hypothesis about what could work in terms of pacing, in terms of nutrition, or whatever it is, and you you, you kind of test that hypothesis over and over and see. And yeah, I try to. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to get this question into one of our question formats, um, but I, I did want to talk to you about pacing for 24-hour and multi-day because you, you seem to have a different strategy than most people and i find it incredibly interesting and successful maybe we'll dig into that somewhere um okay
2: quick question speed work or hills uh these days typically neither it depends on what i'm training for but if it's if it's like a 24 hour or six day um i won't i won't do you know speed work for me means running faster than nine minute miles um so i don't do any structured speed work Part of that is because I have my my biggest um, physical issues in running are my tendons. I've torn numerous tendons uh, starting back when I was in my marathon training days. And um, keeping it slow and steady tends to be the way to alleviate that. And hills, I'll do some hill training for Spartathlon because at Spartathlon, um, if you want to do well, it's especially important to be able to run the downhills. Well, the last 13 miles are downhill. And I pass everybody there. Um, when I ran a uh, six-day race last summer, six days in the dome, I had some interesting experiences. I won't go into the details, but I, I reinvestigated, you know, reread all of my sources and running physiology and muscle damage and stuff, and convinced myself that I would probably do myself some favors to incorporate a little bit more speed work mm-hmm. of some sort. Um, haven't really managed to do that because I always seem to be just on the edge of some injury or recovering from some race or whatever. Right. Um, but basic okay. answer, neither. <laughs> Phil, question five.
1: Okay. Um, what is your, I mean, this kind of ties in a little bit, I guess. What's your kind of weekly mileage?
2: Uh, last week was 110. That was my peak week training for a 48-hour race, 112. And that's, that's a typical peak week, but I won't hold that for long. For I'll, I'll try to get, you know, at least a couple months of 70 to 90, you know, with a few weeks over 100 towards the end. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, piggybacking on that question, do you cross-train? Um, no, I, you know, I do daily core and strength stuff, but I wouldn't really call it cross-training.
0: You have a set routine that you do more or less?
2: Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And I emphasize you know what whatever my physiotherapist tells me based on my latest injury basically
0: (laughs) very practical question
2: seven phil all
1: right do you have a post-run ritual
2: i really do not no i mean back back before i went keto i was i was certainly all into replenishing the carbs and you know getting the ideal four to one carb to protein ratio and so forth but now uh I don't do that. I, um, now that I'm in taper for this 48 hour, I am doing, well, normally I would be doing sauna training, but all the saunas are closed. So I'm doing hot tub training instead. And, uh, you know, that's best right after a workout. Um, so, so that's about it. But in general, no, nothing special after a workout. Okay.
0: You mentioned that you're tapering now. Uh, I do have this on the list. Describe what a normal taper looks like for you.
2: Uh, there's not really a normal it's two or three weeks and, you know, I'll just run something easy five to seven, you know, every day. And I'll throw in a couple of longer runs depending. Um, nothing, nothing, nothing special or really structured.
0: Okay. Phil question nine.
1: Okay. Um, so, you know, you obviously run these super long top races, when things get hard, you know, what what motivates you when these races start to suck and get get really tough? How do you how do you drive yourself on?
2: Well, that's a question with an infinite number of answers, <laughs> I guess. I mean, that's sort of you know <laughs> what is what ultra running is about in a nutshell. I think um, one of the things is just looking back at my history and knowing, you know, having a model of myself that says that I'm not a quitter and that, you know, I know that it's going to suck at some point during every race, and I just have to expect that there's a certain amount of emotional weather I'm just gonna have to endure Um, is maybe the most common thing. The times when I really wanna quit, you know, you might think that I think about, damn it, I've spent all these months training for this race, all I have to do is work hard now, and that would be motivating, but what's actually more motivating is the anticipation of how I'll feel tomorrow, if I quit, that I won't be able to look myself in the face and consider myself a runner, that's that's a stronger motivator. Kind it's funny a, kind during Kind of a negative my, uh, motivator almost. Yeah, uh, one interesting bit of psychology, I was just rereading some of my old race reports. When I ran uh, Desert Solstice 24-hour the first time, uh, I was racing Joe Feages, and uh, I was I was going for the, I just turned 50, I was going for the over 50 American record and a national team qualifier. I was about 18, 19 hours in, and about 8 laps up on Joe who had also just turned 50 and i was super intimidated by him because you know he had the 6-day record and he was just this feared competitor mm-hmm. and i thought okay well at least you know i'm comfortably ahead of joe but then you know 8 laps 2 miles up uh, he suddenly starts cranking it and running you know 215 laps instead of 240 laps and i'm like what the hell am i going to do <laughs> and i'd already i'd already abandoned my my high mileage goals and backed my pace off to what was comfortable, thinking, "Okay, if I push it any more than this, I'm going to blow up. So I'm just going to run what I can run." But all of a sudden, when Joe challenged me, it was on, and I had to, I stepped up my game without hesitation and without question, and I was motivated and I was on for an hour until he gave up, and then I backed off my pace. <laughs> Even though you know I ultimately missed my 150 miles that race, which was a big thing for me, you know in the moment of the race, it wasn't important as the competition. Right, right.
0: Um, Phil, I'm going to steal the next two questions because, uh, they're going to, they're going to be, uh, diet related, Bob, you mentioned that you've been keto for a while. I myself, uh, have been keto more like a little, I would say a little on and off, but more or less for the past five or six years. And, and for the most part, I have found it to be really helpful for, for performance weight control, honestly. Along those lines, what's your uh, normal pre-race meal or, you know, kind of how how do you eat? How do you manage the keto diet in the the couple of days leading up to the race? And then what's your go-to aid station food?
2: So that's a great question. Um, I had this problem in my first few 24-hour races where, like, especially this desert solstice I was talking about, what happened is about eight hours in, I was running along just great and then I blew up and I had to walk a bunch of laps and it was quite a while before all of a sudden it was like a switch flipped and I was able to run again and I ran solidly the rest of the race. Um, And the same thing happened the next two, 24 hours. And, you know, one of the things about keto, the big benefits for ultras is you don't need to take as many calories when you're running. So I was getting by on like, you know, 120 calories an hour instead of the more typical 300. And you you might think, well, of course, I'm going to blow up, you know, because I won't get 120 calories an hour in. But then that doesn't explain why after a short recovery period, I was able to run solidly, you know, on the same nutrition the rest of the race. And eventually I took this to a local um, sports nutritionist, uh, Clyde Wilson is his name. And um, we brainstormed over it. And it turns out that, so I was, you know, tra- though I was training keto, I was doing a carb load before the race because mm-hmm. I figured, That's not going to change my fat adaptation. That's a long term thing. I still have the ability to burn a ton of fat, but why not start with a full tank of carb fuel? Right. And so it turns out that when you do that, you know, if you start a race with your liver in particular, stocked with carbs, um, the liver is inhibiting fat mobilization via the vagus nerve, it turns out. This is something that was not known until a few years ago. And so his hypothesis is that that's what was happening to me and the fat mobilization remained inhibited for a period after I ran out of carbs until I could, you know, it took a while to basically to restart the fat burning engine. Right. And uh, since then I keep, I, I stay um, low carb right up until the race. And I've never had that, that issue happen again. Hmm. So the short answer is um, I don't do anything special leading up to a race. I just maintain my low carb diet Mm -hmm. and, and, don't try to do anything in race. Um, my favorite aid station food would probably be a grilled cheese sandwich or maybe mm. pizza. It yeah. depends, you know, for a 24 hour, I'm, I'm going too fast to want any solid food um, for longer races that that'll be what I'll want. Yeah.
0: So that's interesting what you say, because, um, you know, uh, when you talk to Zach uh, Bitter, who has, you know, mm-hmm. also famously uh, had success with keto at at uh, hundred mile distances yeah. and, and such. Um, so, right. He, he. He's a proponent of uh, a carb load the day before to, like you said, to kind of top off the glycogen stores. And then he says morning of the race or day of the race, zero carbs and no carbs for the first several hours, maybe two to three hours of running so that you're kind of right. You're, you're kicking in that, that gluconeogenesis from the liver uh, or that glycogen breakdown or I'm sorry, the the, uh, the the fat conversion and the fat uh, metabolism and gluconeogenesis, and then you can start adding the carbs in a couple hours later once the kind of, the system is back to what it normally is used to doing. Wow, so, interesting, yeah, yeah, I should talk to them. Yeah, yeah, that's good, because, you know, very similar approaches, but um, yeah, I've definitely kind of struggled with, with that uh, myself. All right, awesome. Uh, Phil, question, why don't you do 12, and I'll give you 13 as well. We'll get back on, uh, on right. track. <clears throat>
1: nice to learn a little bit about the keto diet there from you guys um what's your your bucket list race bob what uh, what's on, what's on your radar what do you what do you really really want to do at some point you've obviously done some great races but what's out there
2: that uh, i guess i'd have to, to say making the 24 hour team you know i i did like right. i said run in the in the 2017 world championships but i was i was first, first alternate and that's that's really been my top running goal for the last 6 years is make the 24 hour team and i've been so close and i've run you know, like last time I ran 154 miles, which, uh, you know, any previous time would have easily made the team. Yeah. But it, it's just, you know, world championships are now only every other year instead of every year. And the level of competition in the U.S. has dramatically risen.
0: J- just in the last so, yeah, getting, three getting, to five to years, really.
2: A member of, of Team USA at the world championships. That's that's my bucket list. Yeah.
0: the I mean, like you said, I, I feel like five to six years ago, 145 miles was a pretty good shot to make yep. the team. It and was. That,
2: that made the team in 2015. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and now, right, you're looking at 10 miles more and, and maybe, you know, really having to scratch and claw for it. Yeah. I mean, the, the talent this, level this, has really yeah. gone up. Yeah.
2: Okay. This year is strange. COVID, um, you know, and theoretically, 24-hour World Championships are in May next year. Right. Uh, who knows whether that's going to happen? But if it does... Um, it's going to be an easier year to qualify. I'm planning on trying to qualify at Desert Solstice, and that'll be the last the last race to qualify. Right. And currently, the the bare minimum qualifying distance 145 would make the team. Right. We'll see what happens at Desert Solstice, but I, you know, if it if it happens this year, I think it's going to be easy, likely be easier to make the team and then right. last time. Right. Phil, 13. All right. Um, if you could do go to the Olympics in an
1: event outside of running, what would it be?
2: Sorry, did you say an Olympic event?
1: An Olympic event. So you can go to the Olympics in an event, but it's not oh. a running event. What would it be? What, what do you <laughs> see yourself as outside of running, Bob?
2: Uh,
1: you can choose wow. anything. Synchronized swimming. tennis. Yeah. T- <laughs> I,
2: I wouldn't stand a chance or anything else. But I'll say that about um, 25 years ago, um, the U.S. luge team was recruiting in the Bay Area. Ooh, and just yeah. on a lark, I went out and did some of their their tryouts—you'd like go down these rolling sleds down a hill—and I just thought, well, that's a crazy thing to try, you yeah. know, because we were trying to drum up interest from the team, and and I didn't make the cut, whatever the cut was. But um, in reality, I think that would be a crazy thing to do. It's very dangerous. Um, yeah. I've never, I've never seen. You know, I watched the gymnastics. You know, I suppose I watched gymnastics and figure skating and uh, the skiing and. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we think maybe luge or. <laughs> guess i guess
1: it does look pretty exciting pretty exhilarating going down on basically on a tea tray at 60 or 70 miles an hour or maybe more yep yep
0: one of my uh one of my college roommates uh did the luge and it was the same kind of story it was um yeah he he was from minneapolis and he was at the you know the mall of america they were doing like a an open kind of you know test it out and he was this kid was one of the best athletes i you know he was like uh, I think he led the state of Minnesota in scoring and soccer when he was a senior. He also played hockey. He was on, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he was a pole vaulter on the, on the track team in college. And yeah, he also did luge on the side. It was, uh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> that guy could do anything.
1: all athlete, I like it.
0: Yeah, and, and wound up being the captain of the ultimate frisbee team at college. So there you yes. go. Yeah. Um, Bob, talk to me about rest days. How often are you taking a day off from running? Once a week, once a month, once a year? What's your, what's your rest day schedule?
2: Uh, if I'm in the middle of, you know, a training block for a race, I don't regularly have any, any rest days. Um, if I'm, you know, if I go out and something doesn't feel right, then I'll just say, screw it because I'm not sufficiently recovered from the last race or this hamstring thing is back or whatever. And I try not to beat beat myself up about it too much, but I don't generally schedule rest days for, for, um, anywhere near peak training.
1: All oh, right. Dear. What uh, what is your worst like DNF or epic failure at a race? What what went horribly wrong for you?
2: Um, technically, I've only had one DNF at San Diego Hundred because my knee was injured, and it was obvious halfway through that I wasn't going to be able to make it. Um, God, most epic failure. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I, I've had a couple times when I've just sort of given up. Um, one that, that comes to mind was, um, dawn to dusk to dawn 24 hour, uh, four years ago,
0: Philadelphia, right? and
2: I've been in, that was my third 24 hour race. And I was again trying to run 150 miles of my first one after that desert solstice. And again, I had that nutrition problem where I blew up at nine or 10 hours. And, um, after that, it was very hard for me mentally to try to continue. The weather sucked and my big goals were gone. Um, but I did the math and realized one of my backup goals to break the 200 K, um, age group record was still barely on the table. If I could hold a solid pace through 200 K. And it was like one of the hardest things I'd ever done because I just really did not want to be out there. And I realized the longer that I ran my body was actually getting more and more comfortable with it, but I was just looking for any excuse at all to quit because I just really did not want to be there. Yeah, and, I, and then I hit the 200K mark and I was ahead of where I'd been at Desert Solstice because I did not hit that record at Desert Solstice. And yet I just sat down and said, okay, I'm done because that was like all that I'd been using. You know, I'd like given myself yeah. this promise that this is all I have to do. And yet I was in a better place than I had been at Desert Solstice to to continue on and break 150, but... I didn't plan to stop. I just sat down. Cause it's like, okay, I hit this big milestone. I need a little bit of a break. And then I got cold and eventually I just, I de facto had DNF myself out of the rest of the race. Yeah. And that was, I had to do a lot of soul searching after that one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah been cool. there for sure. Bob, who's your all time favorite runner?
2: Well, uh, that's uh, that's a tough question. I have a lot of role models and heroes. I mean, I would say Kuros is the greatest ultra runner. I don't know him. Um, uh, Pam Smith has been really inspiring to me. I met her um, like two weeks before my first 100, uh, running a a random 50K. And she gave me a lot of inspiration before she hit the big time, really. And we've been great friends ever since. And I was really inspired by her, um, you know, how she uh, I ran Western States in 2012, and, and she did too. And she had uh, a really bad race and finished in like 29 hours or something. And then she came back and won in 2013. And um, I was there, crewing somebody or uh, pacing somebody else, and I was just watching her race with my jaw down, and read her race report, and it just blew me away. How you know she won that race by being smart, not necessarily by being the 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 fittest person out there. Um, I mean, she certainly did her homework training for it, but she motivated herself the entire year by the previous experience and she just won the race by being smart. And That's, right. that's what I like to do is try to win a race by being yeah. smart. That's
0: cool. Awesome. I'm going to count that as uh, the answer to our next question too, which is who inspires you? So we'll say, I'll take Pam for that. Uh, Phil, go ahead with question 18.
1: Uh, okay. If you could run with anyone living or dead, who would it be? <laughs>
2: Living or dead. Wow. Um, and I
1: guess we'd bring them back to life. We wouldn't have to run with like
2: a <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that'd, yeah. that'd
1: be a little too weird even
2: for us. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go with for that one. I mean,
1: like a running skeleton,
2: you know. you
0: go with who? I'm sorry. Oh, that Bob.
2: one usually go with Fidipides.
0: Fidipides. Awesome. Oh,
2: nice. There's a cool one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Probably some good stories.
2: Um, Bob, what's your favorite book? <laughs> I should have been prepared for this question, shouldn't I? <laughs> um we like putting people on the spot you know i for for a a lot of my adult life i would have said go to lesher bach because i read that when i was in high school and it totally inspired me and and set the direction of a lot of my life um i reread it a few years ago and it's still an awesome book parts of it haven't aged well um it's not quite what i would identify identify myself with these days i don't um yeah I, don't, I certainly cannot come up with an answer on the level of, of Francesca. That, was, <laughs> that was, I'm not sure anyone will ever be able to come up with an answer on that yeah.
1: level. That, that book is staring at me right now.
0: Yes. <laughs> All right, Phil, you got our last question.
1: All right. Um, what is your most embarrassing moment at an
2: ultra? Um, maybe, you know, I've run Desert Solstice a bunch of times, and one year... I had actually the two two moments from this one race. I've had this. i had these, you know, ultra, often in ultras you'll see especially older runners with this massive lean to one side or the other late in the race. I've had that, but at this desert solstice, I had a backwards lean throughout right. a whole bunch of the race. I was just leaning really far backwards, and I was aware right. of it, but I couldn't do anything about it. And even my crew, who's wow. not a runner, said, Bob, you look silly. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then <laughs> it was weird about... You know, about 16, 17 hours in, all of a sudden a switch flipped and I was in go mode and I won the race. Um, And then at the end of the race, I was doing an interview um, and I had this weird neurological thing where my tongue was numb. And I was, you know, like talking like Beth for the whole interview because some weird physiological thing that happened. So there's a couple of embarrassing things there, I guess. (laughs) Wow. Awesome. Great answer.
0: Bob, this was great. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, you mentioned a couple times that you got a 48 hour coming up. You're going to be at three days yep. in the fair. Is that right?
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so we should see you there. I am awesome. hopefully running the 24 and Phil has a trail marathon that day, but has, um, right. I've should kind I'm of, yeah, I've kind of uh, forced him to come down and, and crew in the evening. So we'll hopefully see you there. And the goal is the, awesome. the goal is the age group American record.
2: Well, I already have the age group American record 232 miles. So, um, the question is whether I try to just, I'm pretty sure I can do a fair I should be able, you know, if everything goes right, to do a fair amount better than that. Um, ultimately, the question is whether I dare to pace for the overall American record, 262. And I'm going to have to think hard about that.
0: That's Olivier, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're going to run 262, uh, then that speaks very well for your chances of making the US team at Desert Solstice.
2: Well, we'll see. <laughs> All right. right. Yes, not to, put, yeah. not to
0: put my mouth on times for your feet. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Bob, thanks so much for coming on. This was really great. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in a couple weeks, hopefully.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. you, Paul.
0: Everyone else out there, thank you so much for listening tonight. And until next time in the pain cave, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Broken down and beaten up The years have been long enough But I'm not dead Happy now, just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not faded, just been faded, like a good old pair of jeans, rusted like a proud old car drove a little too far and too much rain. But long ago, as a child, i look about back. The bus feel upset to think of all the years I'd have to go through there I was still young
1: I was still